This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how medications can impact your sleep, part two, with geriatric pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll learn whether yoga can exist without meditation with local yogi Julie Watson. We'll talk about current research into Crohn's disease and colitis with Dr. Remo Pension. And lastly, we'll find out how to cope with holiday stress with trauma counselor Catherine Clark. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. A new study found that HDL cholesterol, often called good cholesterol, may not be as effective as scientists once believed in uniformly predicting cardiovascular disease risk amongst adults of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. The research, which published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology, found that while low levels of HDL cholesterol predicted an increased risk of heart attacks or related deaths for white adults, a long-accepted association, the same was not true for black adults. Additionally, higher HDL cholesterol levels were not associated with reduced cardiovascular disease risk for either group. A new study finds that outdoor artificial light at night LAN, is associated with impaired blood glucose control and an increased risk of diabetes with more than 9 million cases of the disease in Chinese adults being attributed to LAN exposure. Unfortunately, exposure to artificial LAN at night is a ubiquitous environmental risk factor in modern societies. The intensity of urban light pollution has increased to the point that it not only affects residents of big cities, but also those in distant areas such as suburbs and forest parks that may be hundreds of kilometers from the light source. The authors of the study note that despite over 80% of the world's population being exposed to light pollution at night, this problem has gained limited attention from scientists until recent years. Some commercial earbuds can perform as well as hearing aids. The result, presented in the Journal of Eye Science, could help a large proportion of people with hearing loss access more affordable sound amplification devices. Hearing loss has broad health impacts, but professional hearing aids are expensive and require multiple visits to doctors and audiologists for tuning. These factors lead to major barriers for many to access professional hearing aids. One estimate suggests that nearly 75% of people with hearing loss in the United States do not use hearing aids. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. 
Patient care is Andy's number one priority. He and his pharmacy team are specialists in supporting older adults with chronic conditions such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Through their free clinical consultations, they access provincial health records to personalize medications to each individual while helping to minimize side effects and drug interactions. The Health Depot creates a circle of care with clinical pharmacists working with their patient's healthcare team to make sure that every patient gets the most from their prescription drug therapy. Andy's active in his profession serving on several committees, including with the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance and is the Prescribit Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health InfoWay. Andy holds a BSc PHM and an RPH BPHED, a BSCH in Life Science and an MSc Cellular Biology and Anatomy. Welcome back to the show, Andy. How are you? Not too bad. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So this is part de, that's like fancy French, of our conversation regarding medications and sleep. And we've got some new territory to cover uh, today, but I thought it might be helpful just to like briefly recap what we covered last month and contextualize what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So yeah, the first time it's a big topic, sleep, very important one. We talked kind of about the issues that people have with sleep. We talked about the focus needs to be going forward on getting good sleep quality. And that's when we talked about our sleep lightning, your stages of sleep, the need to get a lot more deep sleep as well as dream sleep, right? Because that helps you regenerate your body and your cells and consolidate new memories and learning, right? Yeah. And that over time, how that changes as we age and various factors that can disrupt your sleep and that a lot of the medications that have been prescribed to date have been ones that can actually disrupt your sleep quality and get you into a lighter sleep that you don't get woken up and as fulfilled. So we kind of left it off with kind of talking about the bad, describing the problem and how sleep works and the architecture. But then today we're talking more about how can we get a good night's sleep, right? Let, so the good let, habits, the lifestyle, and the medications that can actually help us. Perfect. All right. So why don't we start with lifestyle? What would you recommend? What can we do to help us get a good night's sleep? I have a few ideas. I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I would always want to stress doing the lifestyle first, right? Just because yeah. with anything, like we always say, there's good but also bad consequences of medications, whereas lifestyle's all good. So it's typically things that, and habits that we can do and things to avoid that can help us get a better night's sleep. Right. Such as caffeine. Right. Right. It's a stimulant. It uh, should not be taken six hours before bed. Same thing with nicotine, the, both of them together. I mean, and, and just like all medications need to be personalized, when you can take caffeine and nicotine, if you do, needs to be personalized as well. Like for myself, I can't even have caffeine 12 hours before bed or oh, wow. up a good chunk of the night. It really affects me. So I have to cut it off at noon. Yeah, <laughs> I can't I, have any caffeine in the afternoon, period. I just went for a physical and my doctor actually suggested not drinking it at all. Like I only have one cup of coffee in the morning. I'm, I'm not a caffeine guy, but he yeah. said even that might be impacting me. I find that hard to believe, but there you go. It can. Different people respond differently to different things, right? And uh, anything even natural and what you drink is it acts like a drug in your body, right? Like natural versus, you know, synthetic like drugs made. They're all act like drugs in our body. So caffeine's one of them and you have to kind of personalize even how you use caffeine. I'm similar. I can only have one or two cups in the morning, usually first thing in the morning or it can have an effect with me later in the day. What other lifestyle hacks do you recommend? Well, we already mentioned alcohol last yeah. time, and it's described, and that's what a, kind of the effect that a lot of those sleep hypnotics do to us. It gives you that poor sleep quality, right? Yep. So alcohol, right? So limiting that or, you know, to like, you know, I think the recommendation is one glass of wine or one, you know, one beverage a day to two tops. You don't want to have too much more of that. But then the rest of that is it's a lot of good sleep habits. 
better sleep hygiene. So yep. making a regular sleep cycle. We go to bed at the same time, right? Because I told you our hormones adjust kind of to our wake sleep cycle with like light coming in our eyes and stuff like that. So you want to have a dark room that helps you make, as we mentioned last time, more melatonin. Yep. No screen time, one hour before bedtime. That's a little tricky for some people. Your room can be dark, but if you're watching a television screen, a computer or an iPhone or something, right, then light is hitting the back of your eyes and keeping you awake, right? So you need to have it totally dark. Reading books absolutely can help because you're not staring directly at the light. It's more reflecting off of your page, right? Yep. So that definitely helps and it tires your eyes muscles out, right? The need to replenish your muscles is what causes the need to fall asleep in the first place. So that definitely helps. Hot showers or warm baths definitely work as well because it's not the hot heat wakes us up. That's why we can't sleep when it's like 30 degrees in our room. Right. But the cooling of our body temperature, so going from really hot to cooling down, triggers our body and signals that it's time to sleep. So it's actually your bath cooling down. It's you stepping out of the shower. If you have a warm blanket, it's you kicking the warm blanket off, triggers us it's time to fall asleep. And that's why a lot of people fall asleep if they're a little bit cooler environment, right? Yep. And then a very important one is no naps during the day, (laughs) okay? I mean, that's easier said than done. So especially after 2 p.m. not to do that, it's best to keep it to under 30 minutes. And the reason for that is that sleep architecture we talked about before, it's your body's need to get the deep sleep and regenerative sleep that triggers us that it's time to fall asleep in, in the first place. And we enter that deep sleep 30 minutes into our sleep cycle. Okay. So if you have a nap that's over 30 minutes, then you're going to regenerate your, your muscles too much that it could throw off your whole night's sleep ahead. Like instead of falling asleep at 11 or midnight, your usual, if you sleep for an hour or two in the middle of the day, you might be falling asleep at three or four because your body doesn't need to regenerate as much. So it can throw off your whole night's sleep. So that's why if you keep it under half an hour, you're not going into that deep sleep. So it doesn't throw off your, your sleep cycle. And in fact, NASA says the ideal sleep is 26 minutes to improve their astronauts, right? I'm surprised they didn't say 26 minutes and 13 seconds or something. (laughs) But that's what they say. So it's trying to eliminate naps altogether. But if you absolutely have to, try to do it before 2 p.m. and keep it under 30 minutes. Right. Can I add a few? Absolutely. So you talked about coming out of the shower. The ideal sleep temperature is between 16 and 19 degrees Celsius. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) So chilly. Yeah. Yeah. Now that my, definitely helps because then it makes you that cooler body temperature, like I said, like makes it triggers you. It's, it's time to go to bed. Right. And that sort of like if your wife or loved one is debating you on that point, because that's like a huge bone of contention amongst people who are together is temperatures. Yeah. But, you know, you can quote me on that. OK. Yes. <laughs> How do you feel about exercise? Exercise is very important. That was my next point. <laughs> Three to five times a week because regular walks, exercise it tires your muscles out, just like we talked about. That's the trigger for us to fall asleep. And that's what gets us in. You go into a deeper sleep to regenerate your muscles. That's why babies sleep for 18 hours a day, and it's mostly deep sleep, and then, you know, a lot of REM sleep, like a lot of both. It's the need to regenerate your muscles and clear the toxins and whatnot, right? So if you exercise, you get into a deeper sleep and into a better sleep pattern, that sleep lightning I mentioned, that, you know, you get less restless sleep and you can sleep longer periods of time. But it's important for physical activity to not do it three hours before bed. Because it takes, if you do especially more strenuous exercise, like sports and stuff, you know, if you do that, uh, and this is the issue I had when I was younger, you know, playing sports until 11, 12 o'clock, sometimes I wouldn't be able to fall asleep until two or three in the morning because your body releases a lot of um, adrenaline and like a lot of hormones that amp you up. And it takes about two to three hours at minimum 
for it to shut, start shutting down, right? So do it before dinner if you can, physical activity, not too late. But yeah, it's very good. Like if you remember a lot of people in the pandemic, I guess a lot of people's habits when we're on lockdown, you're allowed to go hiking at sometimes, right? And, the, yeah. and you got together with your family. If you remember, if you went out for a hike, a three, four, five kilometer hike or whatever with family, you probably slept like a baby that night. It's because that physical activity, you know, the need to get that deep sleep, you got to have very good quality sleep. Absolutely. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I used to play basketball at night and I'd be wired. I mean, it would take me an extra two hours to get to sleep. But I have a very regular exercise regimen and I usually cut off the workouts at late afternoon. So yes. I agree with you. Any other lifestyle tips or do you want to move on to a new topic? Yeah, well, there's there's also the reg- like the relaxation techniques, counting sheep. It's all That's all about deep breathing. It's trying to calm down your nerves, slow down your heart rate and help you fall asleep, right? And cognitive behavioral therapy is also effective. That's techniques that, you know, helping to remove the negative connotations of of bad sleep in your room. The important thing is your bed should be used for helping you. If you're frustrated and you're having a tough time falling asleep, it's best actually to get out of your, your bedroom, go downstairs, read a book, and then when you start getting tired again, you come back to bed to fall asleep. That has something to do with psychology, like state dependent memory, frustration around going to bed. Yeah. It's best to make sure you know your your bed is a safe place that it's easy for you to fall asleep. So and associate stress and anxiety and work in other rooms, right? Agreed. So yeah, that's yeah. the last one. Exactly. You don't want your bedroom to become something that it isn't. Well, there's other things you do in the bedroom. That's a different show. But in your head, subconsciously, you want your bedroom to be your haven. And if you start getting stressed out and feel like lying in bed is stressing you out, which can happen. Yeah, you need to get out of that. You need to get out of that space. You got it. It has to be your room is for, you know, sleep related activities. And then, you know, yeah, the work and everything else is done and stress is done in other rooms. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So what can we do other than lifestyle? So what is it that we can take that, that is actually going to be helpful for us to get a good night's sleep? You got it. So back to the sleep quality, right? So yeah. these are medications that there are medications and obviously there's many different reasons why you do use medications, right? So some yeah. of the ones I talked that are bad for sleep, there's, there's other conditions you might need to take that medication, right? It's a trade-off, you know, pros and cons you have to look at. But for sleep strictly, the meds we talked about last time aren't the greatest for sleep quality. Yeah. These ones are a little bit better. So we mentioned, you know, the happy hormone is serotonin and sleepy hormones melatonin, right? So trazodone and mirtazapine are both originally made to be antidepressants. So they actually help with serotonin levels a little bit, right? But it's weird, these couple medications actually can help you sleep in the sense that, you know, because they act in a different way in our body to help us get drowsy. Trazodone, okay, uh, low doses of 25 milligrams to 100 milligrams are effective, but the difference with this is, and sometimes patients have taken both these meds and said they didn't work for me, right? But you have to take them in a specific manner. So trazodone helps you maintain that deep sleep and that your dream sleep much better than a lot of the other options, but it has to be taken three to four hours before bedtime on a regular basis. So if you're taking it at bedtime, at 11 or 12 o'clock and you want to fall asleep then, like let's say if you take it at midnight and you want to fall asleep at midnight, it's not really kicking in until three or four in the morning, right? So you have to take it a fair bit before and it has to be regular. Now, mirtazapine is another one that's often done poorly. Only low doses help you fall asleep. So as low as 3.75 to 7.5 milligrams. And in Ontario and other provinces, they only cover a 30 milligram tablet. So that means the maximum dose you can take is a quarter tablet to help you with sleep if you want coverage for it, right? For if you're on the Ontario Drug Benefit Program, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And it's because 
in low doses, it binds to a different receptor in our body that makes us drowsy, a uh, histamine receptor. And as you go up on doses above that quarter tablet, it binds to serotonin, that which I told you is the awake and happy hormone. So as you go higher and higher, if you take the full 30 milligrams, it doesn't make you drowsy at all. It just keeps you up. And if you were to take that medication to help with mood and things like that, you would have to take that instead in the morning or it could disrupt your night's sleep. So in that one there, in a low dose, you take about an hour before bedtime. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important with these medications, you really understand them and you talk to your pharmacist and they really help you out to understand, you know, how you need to take this for it to work properly, right? Mm-hmm. And then obviously melatonin, because melatonin is something that can go down in time in our bodies naturally. It's something that taking a low dose can actually help us out if that's the issue. Usually melatonin is used for the doses you get in pharmacies, the 3, the 5, the 10 milligrams. They're just too high a doses. They're not meant to be taken on a regular basis. If you need to take them on a regular basis because you don't have enough melatonin in your body, a 0.5 to 1 milligram is more safe and effective for older adults. Then there's also tryptophan. You know, that's the that amino acid that we have in Turkey. That's why we fall asleep after a Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Our body converts that into melatonin, believe it or not. So those are the safer options for sleep that we can take if those lifestyles don't really help us out, if we need a little extra oomph, for sure. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. It was a pleasure and looking forward to coming on again. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll talk about yoga and meditation on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Julie Watson is a teacher, a mother, a voice for women in mental health, and a student of life. She's trained in fitness, yoga, and nutrition for over 20 years. She believes in fusing mind, body, and spirit to bring awareness to our struggles and create a deeper learning and growth. Julie is the co-owner of Afterglow Yoga and Movement Studio in Toronto and the co-host of the Afterglow podcast, which promotes challenging the systems of patriarchy and provides tools for women to embrace and create their most courageous self. Welcome back to the show, Julie. It's been a while. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here with you, Jamie. So it's like one of these age-old questions we're going to cover today, and you, you wrote about it in the November-December issue of the magazine. It's kind of like a chicken-and-the-egg thing, and that is, can there be yoga without meditation? Are you ready to go? Yes. I'm kind of scared. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> it's a big question. Well, if you can't do it, I don't know anybody who can. So, <laughs> so I think we should start at the beginning, and it seems like a ridiculous question, but I think it grounds everything we're going to talk about, and that is, what is yoga? Yeah, I mean, according to who, right? Yeah. What, what is yoga? How long do you have? We do a... Uh, 
a 225-hour yoga teacher training at our studio for this, and, you know, it's a big question. So I think if you look at it a couple of different ways, first of all, in our Western world, we look at yoga as a physical practice, right? Sprinkle in some meditation here and there. You know, some people previously, I would say maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was more of a thing that was sort of untouchable, unreachable, and yogis did yoga. And now it's more mainstream. But if you really go back into the yoga philosophy and history of yoga, it's actually a way of life. So yoga is a way of life. The asana, the poses, they're just one part of it. And that's where we we move into what is called the eight limbs, which was created by Patanjali, one of the fathers of yoga. Right. And so if you can conceptualize yoga as an aesthetic as opposed to just, you know, movement, Mm -hmm. then, you know, you're reframing the question, right? Like, depending on which way you look at it, it's going to beg a certain answer. It's true. And you're also kind of missing the point, right? What is unfortunate, I think, in our Western world is a lot of us are missing the point of what yoga actually is and what it really can be, because it's more of a way of life. It's more of, you know, a way or a guideline of how to live a really meaningful and purposeful life. All right. So you just referenced the eight limbs of yoga. Do you want to go Mm. over that? Hey, we have 11 and a half minutes and you should, I want you to cover all the eight limbs of yoga. Let's go. Are you ready? This is like, you know, what are they called? The the lightning round. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Quickly, quickly, briefly. So again, the eight limbs are like a series of guidelines that you fall to create this really meaningful and like I said, purposeful life. And purposeful means, you know, doing things for yourself as well as for others. And so in the eight limbs, and I will go over them quickly and describe a few of them briefly, but the first step is you have the yamas, which are rules of moral code. And so they're like ethical standards, how to conduct yourself. And we have a few yamas here. Ahimsa, which means nonviolence or non-harming. Satya, which is truthfulness, so telling the truth, not lying. Asteya, non-stealing. Brahmacharya, which is translated to sexual restraint, but it's really about restraining yourself to not have the distractions of the outside world. Aparigraha, which is non-possessiveness. So those are the yamas. Then we move on to the niyamas, which are rules of more personal behavior. They're more like disciplines. And we have saucha, which is purity. So, you know, like being clean, practicing these personal behaviors. Santosha, contentment. Tapas, which is discipline or austerity. Svadhyaya, which are the spiritual studies. And Ishvara Pranidana, which is a devotion to God. I'm going to move on to number three, which is the asana. So number one is the yamas, number two are the niyamas, and then three is the asana. So asana is not a primary part of the eight limbs. Number four is pranayama, which we all know is the breathing. Number five, pratyahara, means withdrawal of the senses. Number six is dharana, which refers to concentration. Number seven is actually dhyana, which is the practice of meditation. And number eight is samadhi. It's the merging with the divine. So you can see it's almost like at the end of the path, you come to the enlightenment. So those are the eight limbs. Much more than just, you know, downward dog, upward dog, and, you know, this posture, that posture. There's a lot more to it. Correct. I mean, the the asanas, as I mentioned, are number three on the list, and they were actually just discovered or created much later than the other historical practices when you pull apart what yoga is. And the asanas were created to sort of master the body for meditation. 
In your studio, you know, I've taken your classes before and we've known each other a long time. Like, are you focusing on the other elements or is most of the work that's done in your studio the asanas? Absolutely. So what I would say is people come to their practice for the asana and they get much more from what we are teaching. So we really focus on the breath work. We focus on the meditation as well. And we always bring a theme that we can kind of slip in. It's like you're... You're teaching the practice of yoga, the physical practice of yoga, but you're slipping in all of these other elements that people can take with them so that they can come out of the practice, the physical practice, again, being better people to both themselves and to others. You know, part of what we think about yoga is this way to escape our regular world. And what yoga is actually, it's it's actually being in the world more presently, but with action, right? With activation, with intention. And so it's not this way to leave your life and escape and find some breath and find some meditation so you don't have to deal with what's going on. It's actually a way, again, of life that you can use these practices to help you reduce the struggle that you have in your life, not eliminate it. That's not possible. I always thought of it as as tools of engagement as opposed to tools of isolation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So let's circle back to the big question. Mm-hmm. So is there yoga without meditation or isn't there or is that a loaded question? It's highly loaded, Jamie, but thank you for asking it. <laughs> I think, you know what, according to me, this is like according to Julie. Yeah, Cole, of course. But, yeah, yeah. But according to everything that I've studied and the practice that I have been doing for 20 years, I would say you cannot do yoga without meditation. They're one with the other because if you say yoga as a way of life or as in practicing the eight limbs and you're following the steps, meditation is in there. So you can't do one without the other if you are practicing yoga as a whole, as a way of life. And then you are also practicing meditation. So let's just break down meditation briefly if we have some time just to go through it. Meditation is not the idea that you have to sit in a quiet spot, close your eyes and clear your mind, right? There's all sorts of ways that you can bring meditation into your life. And so you can be doing a walking meditation. You could be doing a seated meditation. You could be doing a guided meditation. And the physical practice of yoga is actually a moving meditation. As long as you're doing it or you're coming to your physical practice, with the intention or breath work as well, right? And so you're not actually doing the yoga practice, physical practice as we might see in our Western world, without incorporating meditation as well. So I always perceived it as kind of like the movements are the gateway drug, as you were. You know, and it's the same thing with tonic as a brand, right? Like I think Mm -hmm. if people aren't in any way engaged with their health and wellness, I think for most North Americans, they're going to start with diet and nutrition. And then Mm -hmm. maybe once they wrap their heads around that, then they'll move on to other modalities. And one of them might be yoga or, or not or meditation, or it might be something entirely different. And I'm wondering if you think that the asanas are sort of like the gateway to all of yoga. Does that make sense? I would say 100%, and I really like the way that you term it. I love your terminology for all these things. It really is the gateway, and I would say that that is how I came to it as well. I mean, I came to the yoga practice many, many years ago, and it was for physical means. It was so that I could be a little more bendy and stretchy, and I wanted to learn how to do all these upside-down things and arm-balancing things and that kind of thing. So I would say that the gateway part is it's the gift, 
really. Yeah, right? The for gift sure. of showing up because we do start with, you know, our health and wellness and what are we going to eat and go on a diet and that sort of thing. And then we might go to a gym, right? Go exactly. To an actual like, you know, fitness practice and want to sweat it out. And then once we come to our practice, I remember being in power yoga classes and there's nothing wrong with power yoga classes. It's, it's also a form of practice of yoga and meditation, but I was there to sweat it out and get strong. And I gently, carefully, slowly, moved away from that practice and now when I go to my yoga practice I really go for the gentler flow I go for the more meditative classes I go for the more restorative because that's what I'm getting out of it is restore is you know relieving the stress but is also learning how to cope with my life in the outside world are you seeing this with the people that come to afterglow that maybe they're starting with the asanas and then maybe they're inquisitive about the rest of it Absolutely. In fact, some of our clients take our teacher training program because of the teachings and lessons that they're learning in our regular classes. And they're like, oh, I'm kind of interested in a little bit more of this. You know, I heard so-and-so talking about this the other day. And so it's a really great opportunity for people who are, you know, our clients, our community to deepen their practice or deepen their knowledge of yoga is to then now dive into, you know, this it's a little bit more intensive, but getting the knowledge of what yoga actually is. Fantastic. And at the end of the day, that's all we really want. We want better for everybody, right? Well, we do want that. And I think that what we want to encourage is people to ask more questions about it, right? People to be more curious about it. People to show up on their mat with that curiosity of what is it I'm here for and what is it I can take with me? Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks, Jamie. It's always a pleasure to be here. I love chatting with you. We should do this more often. Absolutely. For more information about Julie's studio, visit afterglowstudio.ca. For great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the latest research into Crohn's disease and colitis with Dr. Remo Pension on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. Medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal, hot water extracted, providing you validated potency so you get their full health benefits. Discover Reishi, Lion's Mane, or Resilience, a seven-mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure the products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Remo Pancioni is an internationally recognized expert in inflammatory bowel disease, which consists of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and is the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Unit at the University of Calgary. 
His specialty and interests lie in implementation and performance of clinical trials of new therapies of inflammatory bowel disease. He is the 2020 Crohn's Colitis Canada Outstanding Physician of the Year and has been recently recognized as the 2020 to 2022 Clarivate Research Scholar for being cited in the top 1% of researchers cited in the world. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So this is a topic that we actually haven't covered a lot on the show, but it's personal to me because there's a family history of colitis. What is Crohn's disease? So Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease, meaning that inflammation happens uh, within the intestine, anywhere from the gums to bum. And it leads to symptoms that include abdominal pain, sort of diarrhea, sometimes bloody, can lead to fatigue, and generally has significant impacts on patients' uh, quality of life. And unfortunately, we don't really know what the cause is or why people get it. And unfortunately, at this point, because of that, there's really no cure for the disease. So it's a chronic uh, condition that patients need to live with from the time they're diagnosed uh, for the rest of their life. And what's the difference between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis? Yeah, so Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are the two main forms of inflammatory bowel disease. And the difference is mainly where the disease is located. So ulcerative colitis is a disease of only the large intestine or the colon, where, as I said, Crohn's disease can affect you from gums to bum. And ulcerative colitis usually affects just the lining of the bowel. So the, so uh, as opposed to Crohn's disease, where it can affect all layers of the bowel. So, you know, I watch somebody live with ulcerative colitis, but for those who don't know, what's it like to have Crohn's disease? How does that manifest? Well, the way I usually explain it to people, obviously, who don't have the disease is that if you think all of us have probably had what we would call the stomach flu or a viral gastroenteritis. And if you think about what it feels like for those two, three, four, five days that you have those symptoms, just imagine somebody like you know, somebody with Crohn's disease when they're actually having a flare of their disease and they're active. Those are the symptoms that they experience all of the time. So it significantly impacts what they can do on a day-to-day basis, whether it's, you know, taking care of family, social activities, or work. And that's probably the closest I can sort of get to trying to explain to somebody who hasn't had the disease what it feels like to have it. Okay, so there's been approval of a new treatment, and you'll correct me if I'm not pronouncing it right. Is it Skyrizi or Skyrizi? Yeah, it's Skyrizi. Okay, there you go. So what is Skyrizi? How does it work and what does it mean for somebody who has Crohn's disease? Yeah, so if we think about the way we would treat somebody with inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease specifically, as I said, we don't know what causes it. We know that there's a genetic predisposition to it. We think that there's some environmental factors, whether that be things like diet, smoking, exposure to other therapies. But in the end, what happens is that patients have sort of an revved up, for a lack of a better word, immune system. So their immune system goes haywire and attacks the bowel. So as we've understood what we call the pathophysiology of the disease, we now know what some of the immune mechanisms are that drive the disease. And one of the important things that drive this disease is this cytokine or protein called IL-23. 
And so we know if we could develop a therapy that would block that, that we could reduce the inflammation, which means reduce the signs and symptoms associated with Crohn's disease, and probably more importantly, heal the damaged bowel. And so that's what Skyrizi is. It's a targeted therapy that blocks that IL-23 pathway, which is crucial to the development of Crohn's disease because we know that if you have a genetic abnormality that drives that pathway, you're more likely to get it. And we know that it can, by actually targeting and blocking that pathway with a drug like Skyrizi, once again, we can get rid of those symptoms. And most importantly, because we think that this is related to how the bowel gets damaged, we can heal the bowel, the damaged bowel. What's the one thing that you want people to know about living with Crohn's disease that you see in your patients? Well, the most important thing, I think, is A, if you have symptoms that sound like you might have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, please contact your physician. Because of the symptoms, a lot of patients are often embarrassed to talk about their bowel habits, but certainly we have new therapies such as Skyrizi, which can actually relieve the suffering that patients have. So first of all, reach out to your physician. The second thing that I would say is that if you know somebody who has Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, uh, and it sounds, Jamie, you've lived through this, is you really need to be there to support them because, again, when they're in times of flare, uh, this could be really devastating, again, to their daily life. And often, if they don't have the support, it does lead to other problems, including mental health issues. Well, I mean, you know, the, the relative of mine who had it, you know, he'd be in such intense pain that it colored every aspect of his life. I, I'm, and, and when he was down, I mean, he'd be in bed for, for weeks on end, let alone days. I mean, this was decades ago, and I'm sure the medications are different, but there wasn't a lot to help him over this hump. You know, like treatments yeah, included like a colostomy was an option, but, you know, that in, in and of itself entails a lot of challenges if, if you decide to go down that path, you know? Right. And I think that you just highlighted a couple of really, really important things. Number one is your experience with your relatives was decades ago where we had limited therapies. The therapies that we have now, especially the one that we just talked about, are potentially life-changing therapies. What it was like to live with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis three decades ago is much, much different than it is now. And even for patients who've had the disease for a long period of time, sometimes they withdraw from the medical system because they're like, oh, I tried drugs in the past and they didn't work. Things are completely, completely different now. And so that's the importance of getting in, seeing your physician, talking about the potential therapies that may get your life back on track. And with that, you know, we have Crohn's Colitis Canada, which is one of the patient organizations, and November is Crohn's Colitis Awareness Month, so thank you for having me. And we have other sort of patient societies that can help the patients on a day-to-day basis navigate some of the trials and tributes associated with the disease. We're going to make sure that we put a link in the show notes so that people can go to the website for that organization if they're interested in getting more information. So let's talk about sort of long-term treatment and short-term treatment. How do you guide your your patients with respect to like immediate care and then long-term care? 
Yeah, and so this is one of the areas that things have changed as we've had new therapies to treat it. So most importantly, not only in the short term and the long term, is to control somebody's symptoms. Right. Again, because that's the way the patients live their day-to-day life or what they know of their disease. But there's unfortunately this disconnect between symptoms and whether we're actually healing the damage that's in the bowel. It's sort of similar to diabetes. Like in patients who are diabetic, they really don't have any symptoms, but they can have sort of poorly controlled, for lack of a better word, diabetes. And if that happens, they actually develop all the complication of diabetes, you know, even when they don't have any symptoms. It's similar to in Crohn's disease where patients can be relatively asymptomatic, so we can control their symptoms, right? But then the key is, have we controlled their disease? Have we treated the inflammation that's in the bowel? Have we reversed the bowel damage? So the long-term goal is really to treat the damage that's in the bowel. And once again, these new therapies are actually way, way better than the the therapies that we had historically. And that's one of the things that for example, sets Skyrizi apart from some of the thera- some of the therapies that we've had until even more recently. Did I understand you correctly? You can actually repair the bowel with some of these treatments. So, if there's been long-term damage, that can be reversed. Absolutely. So we can. So if anyone's ever had an endoscopy or had their bowel looked at, what we can see is inflammation, redness, we can see ulcers, so damage in the lining. These drugs can reverse that. And if you were to say, take a therapy, again, since we we mentioned Skyrizi, if you were to take a therapy like Skyrizi and your bowel was damaged, and I went in and I re-looked at the bowel, say three, six, 12 months later, the bowel could look completely normal to the point where, you know, unless you've had surgery, which some patients have, that you couldn't tell that the patient actually had Crohn's disease. And that's very, very satisfying for us as physicians. But more importantly, you can show the patients, not only from a symptom standpoint, because they felt better, but you can actually show them the difference in what their bowel used to look like and what it looks like now after they've been on therapy. And again, that gives them confidence, gives them hope for the future that they can sort of go back to a normal life. This particular medication, I presume it's approved by Health Canada and, and it's it can be dispensed now? Is that the case? Yeah, it was just recently approved by uh, Health Canada and it should be available to patients starting the second week of December. There are other medications out there as well that you know, individual patients can uh, discuss uh, with their healthcare provider, but certainly the approval of this medication by virtue of how well it can heal and repair the damaged bowel, it is a step forward for us. This medication was also approved a few years ago in another immune-mediated disease called psoriasis and really has changed the way psoriasis is treated by dermatologists, and it's the most common therapy there because it just took therapy and psoriasis to, a, to another level. And we're really hoping that this really translates into the same thing for our patients with Crohn's disease. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Jamie, and uh, best wishes over the holiday season. Thank you. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss coping with holiday stress on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. 
They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. My next guest, Catherine Clark, is an author, speaker, and trauma counselor. Her new book is Gifts in Dark Packages, which is available on Amazon. And today we're going to talk about coping with holiday stress. How are you, Catherine? I'm great, thanks. So you're a trauma counselor. And to talk about holiday stress, you know, when I think of trauma, I think of, you know, very serious issues. (laughs) Are we ahead of ourselves? A little bit of overkill in talking about holiday stress with a trauma counselor or are you needed in this instance? It depends, right? I mean, we all go back to our home for what we think is a nice Christmas dinner. And yeah, if we're talking about whether we're vaccinated or not, or, you know, if we had turkey or if we had beef, things can escalate because it's not really about the moment. Right. It's, it's about, about all the baggage, all the packages. I call them dark packages, all the micro traumas, capital T traumas that we've kind of left on our doorsteps. And so, yeah, on the holidays, they all come rushing back in because we find the father that we have unfinished business with or the brother that we haven't spoken to in perhaps a year. So, you know, when you talk about those sorts of issues, it makes me think, you know, that that's a cause of anxiety, right? And that's what we're really talking about. So how can adults learn to cope with anxiety? Well, it's a very good question. I'm a trained cognitive behavioral therapist. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of, you know, what I actually wrote about in the book was strategies, bite-sized strategies that we can all do right now. So one of those things is even just putting your hand on your belly Right. And taking a really deep breath. Like I'm talking the kind of breath that when you watch a baby sleeping in a crib, they feel their whole lung capacity with air. They're not like, you know, from the upper cavity of their lungs. Right. So I know it sounds so simplistic, but it comes down to self-regulation first and foremost. Right. And knowing where you are in time and space and also recognize I'm going to breathe and know that this emotion that feels like it's escalating and overwhelming only will last 90 seconds if I don't feed into it. And that's where our thoughts are directly related to our moods and emotions and hence our behavior. So if you don't feed the story with things like catastrophizing thoughts, then chances are you can say, you know what? (sighs) I've gotten through this tough times before. I'll get through this. How did I manage to cope before? Right. And is there any other way? To look at the situation. And if you can't do that, have like two people on your, you know, your speed dial, like who are you going to call list if the Ghostbusters aren't answering? Right. Dial it and say, hey, I think I'm getting fired. You know? So at the holiday table, if you witness, you know, a loved one <laughs> who's touching their stomach and taking a deep breath, we, we know we've touched upon something that perhaps is triggering, right? Either that or they've eaten too much turkey and yeah. they had some really bad gas, right? I was going to say. Was but yeah, say. you know what? That's a big part of it as well actually scanning your environment and noticing those cues. It's part of being emotionally intelligent, noticing what you might perceive as an escalating emotion in someone else. Right. And trying to actually 
do something preventative instead of escalating it. Oh, I'm a great escalator. So <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't come naturally to me. Like like you know, in my previous incarnation as as a litigator, you know, oh, you, yeah. you, you know, gaining control over those emotions is both a crucial tool, but sort of, you know, knocking people off guard is another tool in the bag, right? So it's interesting. Yeah, and I think another question I often tell clients to say is is this really the hill I want to die on today? Right. Exactly. You know, there's there's a lot of hills out there. <laughs> exactly. And even in the book, I found one of the most important things that I needed to share with people is that we really have to have self-awareness, first and foremost, right. and self-honesty. So, you know, is this sitting at the table, right. <laughs> is this really worth bringing up right now and getting the boxing gloves out? Or could I breathe, go in and get some more mashed potatoes? Right. You know, go for a little walk, like walking, another simple tool, gets the endorphins going. Right. Can be exercises as effective as anti-anxiety medication in many situations. That makes a lot of sense. So who did you write the book for? Well, you know, I think when I was in lockdown, like everybody else, Mm -hmm. it was something I always had in me. And first and foremost, it was for the clients that I had worked with, people who were suffering from anxiety and depression, your self-help market. But when it comes right down to it, there were kids that had to leave university and, you know, move back home that were really having, imagine a time when you say you can't party, right? (laughs) You can't go with your, out with your girlfriend. Like everyone had lost something and was suffering. And so I wanted to create a mental health resiliency roadmap that you could start yourself. You could give to your best friend who just had a miscarriage to your son who doesn't have a job. And so I literally created all those exits and roadblocks and potholes along the way to hope that it would be useful for anyone and the kind of book that you could just pass along when someone's having problems of living, mental health challenges. I haven't met anybody who doesn't have them. Agreed. So for some people, the holiday season generates anxiety. For others, it's a different, slightly different mindset, and that's depression. Why is that and how can you help with that? Well, you know, especially as Canadians, and I have lived in the Arctic and worked where the suicide rate is 10 times the national average, and I can honestly tell you seasonal affective disorder is real. Of course it is. It's a form of depression. And when you think about it, all those hours of darkness, the cold, the lack of sunlight alone, we're not creating the same melatonin, which actually interferes with our circadian rhythms, our sleep cycle. And we know one of the most restorative things we can do for our whole health, let alone our mental health, is sleep. Right. So number one, <laughs> I always say your doctor is your front door to treatment. Right. And this kind of depression is not just, you know, pervasive sadness, not feeling like you want to get out of bed, which we often don't want to do when it's cold outside anyway. Right. But it can also present as volatility and anger, you know, that inability again to regulate your emotions. So your doctor is your front door to treatment. And certainly in the workplace, I help a lot of uh, leaders to recognize signs of mental illness in their employees Mm -hmm. and to implement accommodations. Get a happy lamp. (laughs) Honestly, you know, you can get them for a hundred bucks and for 20 minutes, you can actually do phototherapy. Right. It goes a long ways to getting you back on track. And I just wanted to make a note, Jamie, that if you have been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, in this case, seasonal affective disorder, it's highly treatable, Mm -hmm. just like diabetes or heart disease. 
And you're not supposed to know because they didn't teach us this stuff in school. But there are resources and bridges that can be built, community resources, our medical professionals, even just self-help tools that can make a world of difference, small bite-sized strategies. So are those the dark gifts that you refer to in your, in your book, or is that something else? <laughs> Interesting you should say that. Uh, the gift is really post-traumatic growth. Okay. It's kind of a big word, but... So, so getting through the, the crisis and then being stronger on the other side, or, or more self-aware, perhaps. I think it's the ability to dig in and go through that experience. Allow yourself to say, yes, this is, oh, it's got my name on it. Okay, I'm going to actually embrace it Mm -hmm. and feel it all to heal it all so that you can get down deep in that dark puddle of pain. I mean, the butterfly can't get out of the cocoon without the struggle, right? Mm -hmm. To stay with the struggle, knowing that on the other side is this newfound wisdom and this strength and this ability to choose and, and see opportunities that you never otherwise would have seen. And I'm sure... There's listeners today who can think of, gee, if not for that cancer diagnosis, if not for that job loss, perhaps if not for something that happened during the pandemic, one of the great positives that came out of that is families started to eat supper together again right? <laughs> and actually have conversations and get to know each other, which which raised the level of self-esteem in a lot of families significantly. Now, there were other families that or couples that, you know, the divorce rate went up as a litigator, right? Right, We've had divorce (laughs) lawyers on the show that would paint a slightly (laughs) different picture of the pandemic than you just have, but I hear you. Both sides, right? Exactly. I think you'll never know what those gifts are Mm -hmm. unless you stay with that process for long enough. And I also just want to reassure listeners that you will get through to the other side because you've already survived 100% of all the crap that's been put in your path. Right. And when you're in the height of that feelings of overwhelmment and depression, and this will never, when you're using those words, never, should, all those things, right. that's all the maladaptive coping strategies, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, switch that to, well, I've gotten through really tough times before. And remind yourself, even of the tools that work for you, how to get through that, how to manage to cope. Now, I know numbing, alcohol, drugs, things like that are often things we reach for. Right. And we all know what pathway that goes down. But what I'm asking is when you came up to the other side of that, and maybe you never have. Right. But there's always a first time and you're still here. You've still got a heartbeat. I think that makes a lot of sense. If people want more information about what we just talked about, where should they go? So the book is available on Amazon. Barnes & Noble coming into chapters. It's called Gifts in Dark Packages. And also on my website, if you go to katherineclarkconnects.com, I have a downloadable resources kit. I wanted to make it very accessible for people so that they could have, I have like coffee with Catherine, sit on, pull up a, you know, a spot on the couch. I have very uh, targeted resiliency tools that are readily available for free. And links to resources like mentalhealth.ca, CAMH, because let me tell you, even just spending a little time, as much time as you're planning your your Christmas uh, dinner, digging into what your feelings, what your you know mind, body, spirit, emotion is, you know what's happening there, you may actually just discover hmm, maybe I do have a bit of a cyber addiction, or maybe I do have seasonal affective disorder, because knowledge 
And self-honesty is going to always lead you to that place from going from your pity party where you're barely surviving to a pivot party and thriving. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Julie Watson, Dr. Remo Pension, and Catherine Clark. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can always visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.